Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park That's good. That's good. And we are up, I think. Rob, what's happening, man? How are you feeling tonight? Doing great, Chris. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you. Yes, sir. Appreciate you being here. And I guess where we should start this is that, you know, from what I do know about you, you adopted, I guess, a philosophy of a four-day work week. And so yeah. but before we start diving into that philosophy or how you came up with that, maybe you should just give the listeners maybe just a small tidbit background about yourself, and then we can start rolling from there. Yeah. Um I, uh, I mean, I'm, you know, born in a small town in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and uh, to some really supportive Midwestern parents and uh, ended up going to school and got three degrees a finance degree, Spanish and management degree. Nice. And, um, you know, I was a sell side equity analyst when I graduated college. So I, I researched medical device and pharmaceutical stocks. And, um, you know, I'm a CFA charter holder. Not a lot of people know what that is. But it's basically like, a certification for it's kind of like an MBA for financial analysis, but it's a se separate designation. Um, but I, I just didn't feel like I was helping people in that career enough. And so I ended up uh, starting my first business on the side, which was an anytime fitness health club. And so I was working the 60 hour week day job, I did this other business on the side, which was pretty, it was pretty brutal, man, to be honest. <laughs> but, uh, you know, once that was able to sustain my lifestyle, I quit traveled around the world for a while. And then came back and, um, you know, I ended up uh, owning or operating nine businesses in about as many years. And uh, now I so I but I sold all the other eight. And now I only have my current business, which is humans first. Okay. And it's a consultancy to help people with a four day work weekend technology overload. So you said you had three degrees, what finance, Spanish, and was it math? Management. 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 So was that your ultimate goal was to get three degrees and then go on from there or what did you have? Did you have this in mind to go out to go out in college and use all three of these at the same time or what? Uh, no, that's a really good question. Honestly, I just really like learning. I really, really enjoy learning stuff. And I actually tried to, I was almost going to get a fourth degree, but they wouldn't let you get more than one outside the school of business. I was going to get an econ degree. Um, but I, you know, I just, I really, I'm using all the degrees actually. Um, you know, I, I just did it though. I didn't really, necessarily have a vision in mind i just knew i liked learning and i was like well if i'm gonna get the credits i might as well get the degree that makes sense to me but i mean this seems like that would be a lot for one person to take on and get three degrees at once or am i wrong yeah i mean I, you know I, I the way i looked at it is uh, like i'm here like my my purpose in life during that time was to learn and i'm like need to be focused on learning and 
you know, why not just dedicate myself to that? I mean, when I, as, an, as a sort of a side example, when I studied abroad in Madrid, Spain, as part of my Spanish degree, I was there for six months for a semester. But I said to myself, I am going to be so pissed if I leave Spain and I can't fe- speak fluent Spanish. And so after about a month, I decided I'm just going to completely dedicate myself to this. And I only spoke Spanish, even with my American friends for the remainder of the trip. And I legitimately think that that, and I also carried around a notebook with me. And every single time I heard a word that I didn't know that I thought would be useful, I wrote it down and I would review that notebook going into school every day on the bus. And by the end of my trip, I had over a thousand words in the notebook that I had memorized. And I still know the vast majority of them today. That was 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago. Nice, bro. I had this theory and I don't know if I kind of borrowed it from somebody or I've been working on it, but I want to get your insights on this, but as far as learning a new language that I had a conversation with one of my friends that if you listen to only, you know, music in Spanish, you know, like that you would eventually pick up the language and be able to, I don't know, I don't want to say talk fluently, but you'd be able to almost be able to speak it in a sense, as long as you could kind of hear the words, go back. And as far as reading might be different, but hear the words, kind of get a sense of, okay, we translate it, what they're saying, and actually learn the language that way. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I for sure think that listening to Spanish music would help learn a language. Um, but I think it would only help for certain parts. I think it would help for learning an accent and then learning specific mm. words. But I think you would need to do have a much more deliberate effort in learning the grammar. Because the grammar isn't, I mean, that I'm not sure that you can like learn grammar, like syntax from a song necessarily. But I think that the song and and listening would definitely help. Yeah, I think it's where, you know, if you haven't heard a song in, let's say, like five or 10 years and then it comes back on randomly and you can also just pick up the lyrics and start to get a beat. I think that's where I kind of picked it up from is that if you kind of got that in your implanted in your head somehow that, yeah, you could pick up a, another language that way in a certain way. But I do agree yeah. with you. That makes sense. You know, I guess you can only get, take it so far, but that's mm-hmm. cool though, man. So, yeah. Oh yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So, all right. So long did we didn't come here to talk about, you know, all that, but so long the, uh, your path, you adopted this four day work week, so to speak. How did this come up? Yeah. I mean, I, so, so just to be clear, I didn't, it's not like I, you know, created the concept of the four day work week, but I just highly and heavily endorse it. And that's what my company humans first does is we help other companies where we got other companies to a four day work week with uh, no loss in productivity or profitability. And what, just to be clear, when I say four day work week, I mean, four, eight hour days, not four, 10 hour days. So every single person at the company gets a full day of time back. And, you know, I mean, think about this. So, the five-day work week started in 1926 by Henry Ford with the manufacturing line, right? right? So we're think about what we're almost a century into this concept of the five-day work week, but look at how much has changed in the last century. It it just makes sense that we should start to be rethinking how we do work and consider a four-day work week. Do you think? All right, I like that. I'll do, I do like. I'm getting along with what you're saying here, but would that apply to as far as a manufacturing perspective, like, you know, with the assembly line, or is this only for, you know, I don't want to say blue collar jobs, more office jobs, or is it both? Do you think? So I think it's both. Um, And so I'm actually, um, you know, working with a a nonprofit called four day uh, global four day week global. And they have, you know, numerous examples of like a painting company or a manufacturing company or a dentist's office or whatever, 
that have done the four day work week. So it's, it's, I would say it's more, it's easier to do for a white collar type profession, but it's still very possible. And I still endorse it for blue collar as well. And so I really think it's appropriate for not every company, but almost any company, almost any company. Well, I'm just wondering because when I left college, when I got my bachelor's degree that I was working for a tire company here in, uh, locally here in Virginia. And, you know, I was basically on an assembly line and, you know, I think my thing was just kind of fixing tires that were, didn't make the actual mint or whatever you want to say. So, but it was a lot of quality versus quantity where Mm -hmm. I I said that right, that it seems like more people didn't really care about the, maybe I'm saying this wrong. More people didn't really care about how long they wanted to be there as long as they could, but they didn't really care about the type of work they were doing. I hope I'm saying that. And yeah, I, you know, and I and I came in, you know, as a young buck, wanting to <laughs> be that guy, like, oh, we got to get all this shit done, you know, we got to get, you know, yeah. get out, like, we get out of here quicker, you know, without working the other guys, and then they're like, no, it doesn't work like this way here. Yeah, just slow down. You're working yeah. too hard. <laughs> yeah, and so like, but I thought I came in with that mentality, I guess, just because you know, I guess I was just trying to prove myself, or just, you know, I didn't really have anything else to do besides, you know, when you're at work, you work, right? And that was probably before. I don't know. That was probably 2009, 2010. So I guess cell phones were around, but you know, it wasn't like how it is today where you're just standing around mindlessly scrolling through Instagram. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah sorry. no, you're good. So I didn't really have another point to that, but I think that's where that question came from that. I, I learned that, Oh, y'all just want to drag this out as long as you can. And then tomorrow to build the same thing. You know, it won't be less work if we do more work today and stuff like that. Yeah. Well think about it. So totally get with your, what you're saying. And I was laughing because I worked four summers in a metal scrapyard in a junkyard and I was sorting metal and crushing can- dirty cans and run- running the forklift. And so I, like I did a, I did a manual job for four years for four summers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing happened at my job where people, the guy was like, you know, you're moving way too fast. Like, you know, and, and I guess I just didn't have the perspective that he had been there for 20 years and I had been there for, you know, 20 days, right? Like sure. it's a different timeline for that in- intensity, but um, as an as a kind of example, so um, and again, like I didn't work with this company, but Four Day Week Global is giving us all these examples of these other companies that had implemented the Four Day Work Week, and they had a, uh, a like a mosquito repellent company where you know they send out a, a guy to your yard and he like sprays the yard and you know then it kills the mosquitoes, right? Sure. Well, they so what they found out is they were um, running the routes where the guys would drive to the different yards really inefficiently. So they got this new, they they were trying to like, see, okay, how could we make this more efficient? So they got this new software, which routed the guys differently. And because it was that much more efficient and just routing their driving, they could save an extra day a week and and give the guys four days a week. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's little things like that, that nobody really thinks about. And, you know, and as far as my work experience, you know, when I've asked questions, you know, things like, well, why do we do it this way? Or, you know, why do, you know, why do we do it, you know, this way one year ago when we could have been doing it this way? And one of those things, like I, it's one of those pet peeves of mine is, well, we, it's just always been that way. Or that's just the way we've always done it. It's like, what yeah. the hell, man? That doesn't mean to make it right. You know? Totally. Yeah. It does not. And it was just like, what are those things? Well, this could be a better way. And it was like almost, and one of my first full-time jobs, it was like, if I said that to somebody, it was like, oh no, what's us think about that. What's this? We'll mull it over. And it's like, what's there to mull over? This is a simple solution, bro. I mean, right. I don't get it. You know, and I just, and I don't know if that's just people not liking change or if they just want to just keep sticking with the, say if it works, if it's not broke, don't, if it's not, yeah, if it's, if it's not broke, don't fix it. 
Yeah. Do you mind if I talk a little bit about the psychology of change and why sure. people don't like it? Yeah, talk about whatever you want to, dude. Yeah, go I, ahead. Love I love it. I love psychology and I just love studying human behavior, right? And so humans as a whole, right, as a species, we hate change. Right. And the reason is because humans have an aversion to losing things, like losing resources or losing power or losing social status. And the reason is resources keep us alive, right? So like we need food, shelter, clothing to stay alive. Those are resources. And so when there's change and for anything, right, it doesn't matter if it's changing uh, a simple procedure or changing the entire company, what people perceive is that they're losing something. And because they're, they perceive that they're losing something, they perceive it as a threat. And so any change, even if it could be positive, could be perceived negatively if it's not communicated in the right way. And I just think that that's really, so if you can convince someone, hey, I'm not taking anything away from you here, I'm actually giving you this thing and you can get them to truly believe it, that completely changes the you know their willingness to do something differently. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Just because, you know, our brains are wired basically as a, a survival instinct kind of thing that if something mm -hmm. does change that, oh, no, we can't do this. We shouldn't take this chance or something because, you know, we don't know how it's going to play out and boom, you might get hurt or you might risk something big. So, yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense, though. But it's also one of those things, too, that I wonder that, you know, if people just don't want to see somebody outshine them right you know like i i kind of saw like that you know my supervisor was kind of a lot older at the time but if i came in and started implementing these new ideas or asking about these new ideas they're like no no if i you know and i don't want to say that's for everybody i'm generally speaking of course this was just my experience. yeah no we don't want you know we can't let's not improve that just because it was your idea maybe not mine you know i mean to me you know that's an interesting it's an interesting line of thinking from your from your former supervisor, right? Because what I would think of is, hey, even if it's not my idea, but I help implement it or I help support that idea and that is successful for the company, it's still going to make me look good too, even though it wasn't originally my idea. Um, you know, that's that's just the way I would think about it, I guess. Well, no, I agree. I mean, we work as a team and like, you know, I've always thought that you know, if somebody's wanting to build themselves up or, you know, trying to have a chance to better themselves or make a resume builder, yeah, go for it, dude. I mean, I don't care. You know, I mean, I've never been one of those guys. And I mean, maybe people would argue with you on this, but, you know, on a power trip, so to speak, you know, I've always been more of a just, hey, man, like I said, just hey, team oriented. You know, I know I'm not the smartest guy in the room and I don't pl never plan on being there. But if there's somebody else who's got great ideas or something like I have no clue about something. Yeah, man, bring it up here. There's no bad ideas. Let's talk about it. Let's see what happens. And if it sucks, you know, all right, we'll move on. You know, we'll just talk it out first. You know, it's not immediately. No, you know, mm -hmm. totally. Well, it's interesting. And and again, not not specifically in reference to your, your ex boss, but I think in general, when people are afraid to uh, endorse other people or support other people or make other people look good, what it actually is, is it's they themselves are insecure about themselves. Right. And right. their their insecurity doesn't allow them to be supportive to other people. And I, it like, as soon as like, I real I read a book, it's called my favorite book of all time. I really love books. It's called The Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene. And I, it's like, I say it like this, there's life before this book and there's life after this book. It literally changed my entire viewpoint on really all of humanity and how to look at people and understand them. It is just incredible what you can see after you read that book, The Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene. Yeah, I've read The 48 Powers of Water. Yeah, 48 Powers oh. of Life. 
Yeah, I've read nice. that. And I, and I currently or recently just bought, uh, is it the Daily Laws or the Daily Handbook? Yeah, Daily Laws. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Daily Laws. And it's got a, um, what is it, a mixture of like, I guess that one you just said, which I haven't read, but, you know, the 48 Balls of Power. And then, then you do a thing on seduction. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And it's like each yep. day, it's like a quote or an insert from one of his books. That's pretty badass. I don't know if a lot of people give him grief because of writing the 48 powers of law or like, what is it? The 48 powers of life law, uh, 48 law. laws of power. Laws of power. Yeah. Keep that straight. So, but yeah, like I remember listening to a podcast and this is maybe a little bit off topic, but somebody might, they might relate. Somebody had that book on their desk. Right. And so their boss or supervisor or the CEO, I can't remember who came in, saw that book on their desk and they immediately said, you know, almost tried to fire them for having that book because they thought that they were coming after their job. <laughs> I mean, very insecure of that boss. Yeah, I think that was Ron Holiday or Halliday. He he wrote he writes a couple of self like very stoic type book. Yeah. Ego yeah. is the enemy. There you go. Yeah, and the obstacle is the way. Yep, I really like his work too. That's, that's I recently just read that one. Obstacle is the way. So yeah, and uh, yeah, he's. I think he was talking about that, and that was him that. You know, he was like, no, it's, I'm just reading the book, you know, and just learning things from it. I'm not, you know, trying to get on a power trip or coming after anybody. Mm-hmm. It's weird how people just interpret things like that, I guess, is what I'm getting at. And like make it a what, judge it, you know, judge first rather than to actually talk it out or think through. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, one of the things that I really learned the hard way from, you know, coaching over 100 employees over the last nine years is, you know, never assume anything, right? Or or I guess the the only thing that you should assume is good intent. Sure. I like that better. The only thing you should assume is good intent. And and so like even if there was some there was some situation that just seems so obvious and clear and plain, like, oh, like this, if I if I was thinking of myself, like this person clearly did this, I would still ask them instead of accusing because then they get a chance to explain themselves or, you know, maybe there's some other extenuating thing that I didn't see that affected the situation. And, you know, when I didn't do that, though, when I was just accusatory right off the bat, I mean, that really, I made a bunch of mistakes that I, you know, were really unfortunate. And I damaged relationships with good employees that I shouldn't have, you know, by doing that. Yeah, you know, I was a young supervisor at one point, you know, just, you know, uh, managing you know student employees on campus and that i was you know learning as i went too and then i was you know trying to read books and pick up things that other people were doing and i was still learning my own way and i you know i i don't want to say i burn any bridges but it was other situations like you said that i could have probably handled differently or wish i would have like known or received more information before i made a decision you know and it, it's one yeah. of those things that you know, like for podcasting here, for example, or even that, that, you know, if you have a thought that saying just if you would have said, OK, 48 Laws of Power is the best book you ever read. And that was it. It was taken out of context. And it's like, well, we can have this long format, kind of long out, drawn out conversation on why it is, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, if somebody if you came on here, it was like, oh, I think all the roads in the world should be painted yellow. And then somebody takes that. It's like, what the hell is this guy talking about? But <laughs> like, well, let's see what he's got to say. Let's see. Well, why does he think that way? You know, let's see what the story goes. And yeah. yeah, it's too quick to judge. And it's like, that's one of the things that, okay, sit down, take a minute, you know, and I guess you can't say that for every scenario. I mean, there's different situations, but yeah, for most things, I was like, let's gather all the facts, all the information, and then try to go after it. Yeah. Well, it's what you're saying is interesting. And I, I could tie it to something else that I've been uh, just thinking a lot about lately is, you know, like, let's pretend that, uh, you know, you and I are, uh, we're on Facebook and I see you make some sort of post and I comment and I don't think about it very much, but I comment something and it really makes you upset. Right. Sure. Well, the problem with that is, 
when I make that comment, I don't see the either the sadness or the anger or the despair or whatever on your face. There's no, there's no, I don't have a an emotional connection to the comment that I made and the emotions that you experienced. There's no empathy, right? There's no empathy. And so this lack of empathy and lack of feedback, right? Because I'm not normally in a conversation like this where I can see your face, I get feedback as soon as I say something. And when there's no feedback and no empathy, this gives people a permission or they think it gives themselves permission to just say nasty things to other people online. And I think that that lack of empathy is really driving a lot of these totally crazy conversations online where people just get into these really bitter discussions about whatever, it doesn't matter what it is, right? But I, you know, so the rule that I've kind of developed for myself is I wouldn't write anything online, whether it's a comment or something else otherwise, that I wouldn't say to somebody's face. It's a good rule. That's a real good rule. And, you know, and just going on with that, that it's one of those things that I think in today's times that so many people want to be right, or maybe they just love arguing anymore just because it's so easy to do it on through a keyboard. And, uh, you know, you talking about a four day work week, you know, somebody, maybe somebody will just want to go, no, screw that. I want a five day work week just because <laughs> just I want to start a fight, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's just it, those trolls out there. Right. And it's just, man, what are you, it's like, what are these people doing? Like spending that time, like arguing with you or the rest of the world on the internet where they could have just put that energy getting three degrees and doing something bigger with their lives rather than just sitting behind a keyboard. Well, you know, what's interesting, man, I kind of have a theory about why this is happening other than what I just said, right? And so if you look at this, um, so uh, two psychologists, last names Ryan and Desi came up with this theory um, of of what humans need at, at a very basic level. And they came up with this theory in about the year 2000. And so the three things that all humans need are this autonomy, mastery, and purpose autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And I think that this, that those three things are structured like this. I think that autonomy is at the very top where every single person, their most basic need is autonomy. Because if you don't have autonomy, you cannot change things to survive. So in other words, like if I'm uh, in a box and I um, I'm strapped down and, and then the box fills up with water, I, I already automatically give up because I know that I can't win. It's it's super demoralizing. But if I can swim and I'm in the box, then I know that there's a chance that I can survive and get out. I, I have autonomy, right? So I think that that's the most basic need that all humans need. Then if you think about mastery and purpose, I think that they're like on a seesaw. And I think that they need to be balanced out. You can think of purpose as connectedness or being a part of something greater than yourself. And you can think of mastery as uh, like um, uh, progress towards something that's meaningful in your life, like success in a career, for instance. Well, if you think about what's happening to the world today, I think that most uh, there were, we have a lot less purpose, a lot less connectedness. This, this need for purpose or connectedness is, is the need isn't going away, but our, our, our connectedness with other people is diminishing. And so if that's on the seesaw with mastery, then I think that people need a greater sense of mastery in order to balance out the lack of connectedness. And they feel like there's mastery when they are right or correct, or, you know, when they're, win a battle or win a, an argument. And so I think that this is, you know, this lack of connectedness is kind of manifesting itself in more people wanting to be right online 
um, and make these nasty comments to people. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, going touching on that a little bit that, you know, COVID taught us that, you know, we left on, we were living on momentum and then all of a sudden it got put to halt and all of our connections just drowned it out. Especially if you lived in a city where it was like, no, you cannot leave your building or whatever. And that, you know, humans wanted to still seek out some kind of attention. And there was people out there like, Oh, I'm a lone wolf. I don't really need anybody. But, you know, I think based on human psychology, like you're talking about, we're very tribal and we need these human connections in some sort of way. And, and like you talk about autonomy and mastery and purpose, I mean, having those connections and bills, all three of those things, like you just you know, said very well. And I think that people started to realize that, that they are not as wanted wanting to be alone as much as they thought they did. Yeah. So what's one of my favorite statistics that I learned in, in researching technology mindfulness is uh, the sense of closeness between two people drops by 80% if they haven't seen each other in person in five months, in only five months. And, and that's in person, like a phone call doesn't count, a text message doesn't count, it has to be in person. And so imagine what happened during COVID, right? How much did the sense of closeness drop when we didn't see some people for years? Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, it basically the, the closeness between those people didn't exist anymore, most. And so like the rule of thumb that I have for myself is if I really want to try to maintain a close connection with people in my life, I need to see them at least once a quarter in person or four times a year, well, which is a lot. It's a lot if they're far away. Right. I mean, I'm not going to fly across the country to see one person four times a year unless I, you know, it's really somebody special or whatever, because yeah. uh, I, you know, I, how many times could I do that for how many people I know? Right. Yeah, I like that. I like that statistic because, you know, you said it didn't matter if it was on, it didn't count if you were on like a Zoom call or a phone call or whatever. It's gotta be. Yeah, because, you know, I've had I've asked people on here and, and I'll, I'll get your thoughts on this, that if you and I were having this conversation in person uh, in comparison to over Zoom, would it be a completely different conversation? Yeah, so I love I love this is, uh, again, like so much psychology behind this, but um, so you can think of the way that humans transfer emotion as reading other people's faces, but more importantly, reading the area around their eyes. Okay. And that's called limbic resonance. So when we're in person, we have the highest amount of limbic resonance, meaning that my emotion is being transferred to you even without words, just by the way that we look at each other. Well, what's interesting is when we're in person and especially when there's warm human touch, like a hug, right? Our brains release two chemicals, serotonin and oxytocin. Oxytocin especially is this chemical that makes us feel loved and cared for and supported. Mm. Well, what happens is when we do digital communication, even like Zoom, but also uh, text messaging and phone calls, there's less oxytocin and serotonin released. So we feel less cared for, less supported, less loved. And there isn't as much connection. It actually affects our brain chemistry differently when we use technology versus when we are in person and give people hugs or are talking in person. It actually is different brain chemistry. So in younger generations who grew up with screens in their face all the time, is this we're seeing a different brain chemistry from them, do you think? Yes, this is why I think, think about this. We are the most connected we've ever been as a species, yet people are reporting the highest levels of loneliness ever. Sure. 
Why would that be? It's because we are using so much digital technology and replacing it and replacing what used to be in-person communication or events, right? It's not just communicating, it's everything. It's like people are going to concerts on Zoom now instead of going to a concert in person. And I personally think that that's totally crazy. Like the whole point of the concert for me is like being with the energy of the people, you know, like that's what I love. And so I, I think that there's tons of things that we were replacing that used to be in person that we're not doing in person anymore. And I don't think that's good for, I don't think it's good for human connection. And I don't think it's, I think it's, think about it this way. So one of the main ways that humans deal with stress is our social support system that I was just talking about, the, our feeling of connectedness with other people that we care about in our life, like our family and friends and spouse. Well, when your perceived support system is diminishing, you have a worse ability to deal with stress. And what's also happening in our world is we have more stress due to technology. So more stress from technology and less ability to deal with it because we have less social support. Both of those are going in the wrong direction. Oh, I agree 100% with that, man. Just because and even with the self-development of a child and even the cognitive development, you know, just exactly what you said that. You know, and I don't know any statistics, and I'm probably the last person who should even be talking about this, but I can tell that growing up, you know, in going to school over Zoom cannot be great for the brain. No. Yeah. Just, yeah. There's no way that, you know, and, you know, sitting there on it. I mean, I forgot where I was listening to from or where I got it from, but students were, you know, just turning off their computers or putting them the video off while they just listen, barely even listen, and probably played a video game during the whole time during school. Right. So, yeah, it was one of these things like, how can this work out? This is, is this even school anymore? I mean, you know, for example, like, you know, I'm a, I did PE for my bachelor's degree and then, nice. yeah. And so I was wondering that I forgot who I was talking about this with that I was like, well, how are they even doing PE through zoom? And I've read, and I read, That's wild. And yeah. And it was like one of these things that they would just send out a, I don't know, an email or I don't know what it was, a assignment that saying like, oh, we asked, the, we told the students to go run around the house or something for three laps or something. It was something crazy like that. I mean, I'm probably butchering that really bad. So, and I don't mean to offend any PE teachers or anything out there, like <laughs> but it was something like, there's no way these kids are probably doing that. You know, there's like, no, how, how can this be educational and anything is one point. So and I even, agree, man. And, and even taking a test. I mean, yeah, you know, I was not the best student any, or by any means, but having Google and computers here taking a test now, I mean, oh, yeah, sorry, teach. I didn't cheat. Don't worry about me. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's interesting is I heard it's and I don't remember which school district it was, but some school districts had test scores that were like astronomically higher during COVID. <laughs> and you know what's happening is the parents were taking the tests. <laughs> we're helping the kids with the test. Well, what did you think was going to happen? Really? It was like test scores were like this and then, psh, yeah. well, okay. Well, I mean, I, I'm not knocking. Actually, I shouldn't be even, I guess, even talking about it because, you know, when, you know, I work in higher education now, but when it all came, COVID came to all, made everything stop, that nobody knew what to do, right? They, nobody, all mm. the professors had to take all their classes online at a, you know, I don't know, at the last minute, at a speed of light. And nobody really knew. So they were just, you know, again, throwing, it was one of those things, throwing shit on the wall and seeing what would stick. And so, but it was kind of like, I guess that was the best they could do at the time. I don't think nobody sure. deliberately was trying to, you know, screw people over, I guess, as far as education was. So I just want to make sure I said that, not to be too harsh on anybody. Totally, totally. And my dad was not only a teacher, but also a vice principal at a high school, his career. So I get it. You know, I'm, I totally understand that my mother-in-law is a teacher. 
I really respect the teaching profession. I think they do great things. And I think everyone was doing the best they could, like you said. I mean, it was far from an ideal situation. And I'm super grateful I didn't have to put any kids of mine through school during COVID because I think that would have been really tough. Yeah. And, and just kind of even talking about technology and uh, or even the Zoom calls and using the Internet now to teach children and the cognitive development. I mean, is this part of your technology mindfulness that you kind of have and what I re- read about a little bit about about you? Yeah, absolutely. So I I kind of define technology mindfulness as having an awareness of using technology in a way that makes your life easier instead of harder. And there's all these things that people are doing to themselves with technology that I, I don't even think they're aware of. And I just really want to, I just wish I had like a megaphone where I could blast this information to the 4.2 billion people connected to the internet. Cause I know that it would change the lives of so many people. Right. And let me just give you like a really simple example that I'm, I'm sure will resonate with many of your listeners. So let's just pretend it's 10 o'clock, right. And you're getting ready for bed. You're going to go to bed in like 20 minutes. You're like, you know what? I'm just going to check my email one more time before I go to bed, right? I, I did this too. I did this too. So many times. You're like, I'm going to check my email one more time on my phone before I go to bed. I know. So you check your email, right? And you get an email from your boss and it says something really offensive to you and it pisses you off. Well, now here's here's what's happening. So like you're probably thinking to yourself, well... I'm probably not going to respond to my boss because that will let him know that I'm up at 10 o'clock and reading email. And I don't want him to think that I'm reading email at 10 o'clock or that I'm going to respond to it. But then if you don't respond, then you're kind of like stewing in this anger, right? You're like, like, you know, you can't resolve this anger. And so what does that do? That activates your sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight or flight system that, you know, helps you get out of threatening situations. And even though there isn't like a threat to your life, you still perceive there to be a threat maybe to your career or your job, right? And so your your sympathetic nervous system, this fight or flight system gets activated. And then you, I mean, a bunch of things happen, right? But the, the main implications are this. Not only do you go to bed probably way later than you wanted to or thought you would, but then the other thing is your quality of sleep for that night is probably terrible, right? And so when your sleep is bad, everything else in your body suffers, everything, right? Because you can't repair cells, blah, blah, blah. And so your entire next day is probably going to be crappy just because you decided to check your email one time before you went to bed. And so like, those are the kind of things, that's just one very simple example, the kind of things that I'm trying to help people start to be aware of, or like, maybe then the the next time they check the email, they ask themselves, is it really going to serve me well to check my email at 10 o'clock before I go to bed? Or should I just wait till morning? Mm. Which it's probably one of these also habits that people have just created where like, I was just talking about mindfully or mindlessness or never, whatever, not even knowing that you're scrolling through Instagram or looking at your emails. And, and I've noticed for me that and it's a terrible thing that I did one time that, you know, I was having a conversation at the gym with one of my bros. And then randomly during mid conversation, I just grabbed my phone and just started scrolling. And he's like, what? And he called, he called me out on it. Thank God. He goes, Oh, I'm sorry, dude. If I was not, you know, uh, living up to your uh, standard or whatever. And I was like, bro, I am so sorry. You know? And it's one of these things that, you know, when people say they're bored or whatever, like to stand in a line, you see everybody just got their phone just scrolling through. And this is like, how is this impacting their day? And 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 I guess my point is, is that I'm one of those people that 
through my work, like as far as tickets and I work in IT for a higher ed, that nice. all of our stuff comes in through email basically and for, yep. my, for my part of the group. And that I just, you know, I'm always just checking it because I'm either just have my phone obviously right beside me. And it's just so easy for me. Let me see if anything come in. Oh, nope. Good. All right. Cool. And it's yeah. like you said, like, oh, I can wait or oh, maybe I should just go ahead and do that now and get it done with. And yeah. It impacts you. It does impact you, especially the mental part of it. Well, it really does. And what and what a lot of people don't realize is not every time, but a lot of the times when you interact with technology, like, for instance, every time you check your email, every time you check a notification on your smartphone, it does activate your sympathetic nervous system, this fight or flight system. And But the problem is your, your fight or flight system needs at least 30 minutes or more to downregulate and recover. Mm. Well, the average person checks their email once every six minutes during the workday, and they get a smartphone notification once every 15 minutes. And so... You're so you're doing the math and saying, oh, well, I'm for sure interacting with technology way more frequently than every 30 minutes. And that's correct. And what's happening then is every almost every person on Earth that uses a cell phone or Internet is activating this fight or flight system throughout the day. And it's making them more amped up and nervous and stressed out throughout the entire day. And they never have a chance to recover. Sure. And I truly believe that this is the root cause of not all, but like a big part of the mental health crisis today. This yeah. is what I believe is really contributing to it. Well, have you, speaking of books again, have you read, uh, is it The Coddling of the American Mind? So a lot of people have mentioned that book to me and I haven't read it yet, but I appreciate that recommendation. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. write it down again. Well, I mean, the gist of it is that, uh, I think it's Jonathan Haidt, Haidt? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, and he actually throws out a bunch of scenarios and uh, statistics about how, you know, I think one of the more things that come to mind is like how, you know, small girls have, suffered from more mental illness just from being yeah. cyber bullied and having screens in front of them and you know yeah. not even being able to live up to the standards of their parents in some sort just because of you know i guess i don't know if it was technology or what that point it was but yeah it's a good book it just talks about how this is more mental illness cases are arising these past i forgot what years he covered but yeah it was like oh just due to technology and screens so, so it's interesting, right? If you look at, and I've and I've studied this very, very closely um, with a different book called iGen by Jean Twenge. And she basically is like this generational researcher. So she researches all the different ways that the lives of different people are affected by different things in life, right? Sure. And so um, what she, what one of the graphs in the book just blew me away when I saw it. So like you could see a graph of people's of chill, like teenagers depressive symptoms and they were relatively steady or actually declining a little bit for like a decade but then around 2012 they just started to hockey stick well guess what happened in 2012 two things that was the first year that smartphone penetration reached 50 percent in the united states and it was also the same year that facebook bought instagram mm. and so you know that's it's and there's all, you know, it was very hard to prove a couple of years ago, but now we have very, very clear evidence that excessive social media use causes depression, causes anxiety, and in some extreme circumstances, causes people to be suicidal. I agree. We and we we there's no there's there's very clear evidence. It's not you you know you can't debate it. And so um, I think you know, and this is probably a somewhat unpopular opinion, but I just this again like st the stuff that I want people to hear is I truly believe that uh, social media is the cigarette of the 21st century, and I think in 10 years from now we're going to be like. What on earth are we thinking giving these 12-year-olds unlimited access to this insanely addictive platform on their phone and it's super convenient and, you know, we're expecting them to just, just use it to stay in contact with people but don't get addicted. Like that's impossible, especially when you're 12. 
or 10 or however young you get it. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. I mean, to me, I'm glad I liked how you said that. It's a cigarette of the 21st century. 21st century. I like that. I'm going to have to remember that. But no, I wholeheartedly agree with you just because the internet is like the wild, wild west right now. We're still figuring it out as we go. And, you know, in 10 years now, we don't know what it's going to be like. You know, when did the first iPhone come out? 2009, 2008? 2007. 2007. So, yeah, it's like, look, we're that's what is that? 13 years, 14 years we've already came up. Like, wow, 15 years, actually. It's like, look how much has changed. And it, it was it get faster so many different years because we're getting better at the technology? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, wow, okay, so now in 2030, what is it going to be like? Right. And it's, you know, and everybody's talking about, like, the metaverse this and the metaverse that. And I, I'm actually, you know, again, I think the metaverse is going to be, be able to do good things for humanity. And I it, and just um, by the way, I should before I like talk about this more, I just want to be super clear. I'm a nerd and I love technology. I built my first computer in middle school. So the way that I kind of describe my stance is I'm not anti-technology. I'm pro-humanity. Right. So this is not an anti-technology stance that I have. But um, I think that what's going to happen is people are going to if the metaverse becomes think about this. Right. So if the metaverse world becomes so real that we prefer our life in the enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at betmgm sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet when you register with betmgm you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features live betting options and the best daily promotions in the business and with betmgm at your fingertips every play and every game matters more than ever place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park metaverse compared to real life don't you think that's going to have a bunch of real difficult problems that people like mental issues that people are going to have to you know navigate because think about that it's if i prefer this this virtual world and not the real world i'm just going to only want to be in the virtual world and what do you think that's going to do to my identity in the real world it's going to destroy it it's going to make me feel like total crap about myself in the real world because i'm this amazingly successful and wealthy or whatever person in the in the metaverse and i don't think that humanity is ready to deal with that mentally i agree with you on that too just because you know and i don't want to again i guess i'll touch on what you just said before your comment that you know i don't want to shit on technology either because it has made a lot of things very important jobs and i was going to get into like the pro things of it but uh you know, and, and to your point, though, you know, there's no, again another book, uh, addiction. I think is what it was called by Adam Alter, and he talks about how you know people who've got so sucked into like World of Warcraft, and they you know live their life there twenty four seven, being this avatar in that world, and they let their lives go to ruin just because they like their life playing in front of the keyboard in World of Warcraft better than their own. Well, and dude, you know, it's, I should have said this earlier, Chris. So when I was in, um, I'll tell you guys a quick story. When I was in high school. It was a very tough time for me because I had really bad acne, like extremely bad. It was very crippling to me, socially crippling. And I had very low self-esteem and self-worth. It was really a tough time. 
And one of the unfortunate side effects of me having this bad acne was that I actually became addicted to video games. And it wasn't World of Warcraft because that wasn't out yet, but I was addicted to Diablo 2, which is very nice. similar. Nice. And so I would play, you know, real late in the night um, when I was in high school. And, um, you know, this though was in the mid 90s before most people even had a cell phone or an internet connected computer at home. And then at different parts of my life, I was also addicted to Facebook and email. And so I've been addicted to many different technologies and I, I've experienced that firsthand, right? So I'm not just like, I'm, 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 this is a very personal issue for me that I've experienced and I want to prevent other people from going through what I went through. Cause I, that wasn't fun. Uh, none of those were fun. And, um, you know, I just don't think that people are aware that these things can even be addictive or maybe they're aware, but they're, they don't know what to do, you know, and that's why I want to help them yeah, figure well, out some strategies and what to do. Yeah. What's one of those things that you don't realize that how much time you're actually putting into or how much time goes by if you actually play a video game and, uh, and just, you know, where your day goes, you know, cause you're either, you know, it's very, what some most games, I'm like really like task oriented games and that yeah. I used to play a lot too back in the day, but you know, all my friends started getting married, having kids and stuff. So we don't play, we still try to play one night a week, but nice. one of those things, you know, you say, Oh, I'm only gonna play for an hour. Well, it's like six hours later. It's like, shit, what did I just do? You know, then <laughs> like, and it's one of those things too. It's like, Oh, well, you know, if you know, you can get a certain item in the game or whatever, it's like, Oh, I could just grind this out for another hour. Then half the night's gone and you keep grinding. And, you know, I don't think, I don't want to say I was ever addicted to a video game, but if there was one video game I was addicted to, it was a, it was a basketball game. It was called NBA 2K. I think it was like 17 or something. Okay. Nice. And it was just because all my friends, we all played it together. And it was, you know, when uh, I, we all got out of college, all of my friends went to, we all moved away from each other. Right. Yeah. So it was one of those things like how we kind of stuck together. You know, we were playing against, we'd get on the same team, we'd play other people around the world. We were trying to get good at it. We got pretty bad at us ass at it. But you know, it was one of those things like I was waking up early and grinding my player out to make it the best that he could, you know. <laughs> it was like shit, I gotta go to work now. And I'd come home on my lunch break and so like I get a couple games in. And uh -huh. then, like I almost got to the point where I started skipping my workouts and my training for my CrossFit stuff. I was like, whoa, dude. Oh. And like you know, and that's you know. Not that's probably a very poor example because it was probably nothing addicting, like you know, how I just said about the guy in World of Warcraft, or like you know, you just talked about. But for me, that's when I kind of knew, like, how much time am I putting into this? And wow, what should I be doing with all this time? And you know, and I don't regret it because you know, it got to a point where I was like, all right, set a time frame, you're only going to play for these amount of hours, and I just had to get self discipline, you know. And it's like, yeah. all right, and it, it, made, it made it for me, I wasn't stressing over it, I wasn't worried about it anymore, I was just. But just have fun with it, you know, so. Yeah, man. Well, I, that 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 really resonates with me, Chris. And, you know, when I realized I was addicted to Facebook was I was I was like I was I found myself opening up the Facebook app on my phone when I was in elevators and I had a 20 second break or when I was at red lights. I'm right driving. I'm right there with you. I know. That. And I was like, what the, what the F am I doing? <laughs> You know, I'm filling these 20 second spots of my day with Facebook. Like, you got to be kidding. Me. Yeah, that's. And and that's when I was like, this is a problem. Like, yeah. you know, I was trying to be objective. This is a problem. And, you know, to your point. Um, so what, what, what a lot of people don't realize about the especially social media, but really a lot of the technology companies is the main business model is to get as much of your time and attention as possible. Right. The reason is if they get as much time and attention as possible, that means they serve up more ads to you and they get more money and they become more profitable. And so human time and attention is now the most valuable resource in the planet. It's more valuable than oil. 
And so when you realize that, when you can see that and you keep that in mind, all of a sudden, all the business models become clear. That's why you have so many notifications on your phone. That's why the, all the apps want you to come back and use it every day. Yeah. And and I think the the biggest the biggest um, well I know I don't think I know the biggest time suck by far for everybody at least in America is social media. So the average American uses their smartphone right around four hours a day, and the average person is on social media two hours and fourteen minutes a day. So over half of our phone use is now spent on social media. Wow. And we just so, but think about that. That's average, right? Two hours and 14 minutes. If you're a young person, you probably greatly are way above average. You could be, I've easily talked to a lot of people who are four or five hours a day on social media. So think about that. If you're on social media five hours a day times seven days a week, that's literally, that's almost, that's 35 hours. That's almost a full time job that you're doing. Yeah. And for no pay, though, no pay, right? right? And so like, those are the kind of things that I want to bring awareness to for people so that they can ask themselves, like, does it really serve me well to spend two hours and 14 minutes a day on social media? Or would I rather maybe cut that time in half and spend the extra seven hours a week with my family? Mm. You know, would, or, 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 or traveling or exercising or doing whatever, anything else other than social media? Would it all right? So playing devil's advocate advocate here, would it yeah. be the argument for that is that, oh, well, there's, you know, I don't know, an influencer making six figures a year on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. I mean, well, so why can't I do it? You know, I mean, if they're making that type of money and they're spending all their time, you know, going through their comments and notifications and whatever they I don't know, just making twerking videos, whatever they do. But it's just, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not knocking it. If you're making money, if you're happy, whatever, do it. I don't care. But I mean, I guess that would be the counter argument for that statement, right? Yeah, well, I have a bunch of things to totally understand that. And I have a bunch of things to say about that. First of all, you have to look at what's the real real world percentage that you become a, well, and we'll define successful influencer as someone who makes $100,000 or more a year in income, right? Okay. And I don't know what the statistic is, but it's way, way, way less than 1%. Way less than 1% of people on social media are making $100,000 in income. Let's say it's 0.01%, right? It's like, and so what, what people, what young people don't get is, they only see the people who have made it on social media. But what they don't see is the million, literally millions of people who have tried to do that and failed. They mm -hmm. don't see that because no one, no one's going to put on social media. Hey, I suck. I failed. And, you know, here's, you know, here's what you can learn from that. No one's going to say that. And even if they did, they, their account probably wouldn't be that big because they failed. <laughs> so, you know, um, but the other thing is, which I think is extremely misleading is, a lot of the influencers, in my opinion, misrepresent their true success. And that's because they want to, you know, give you this air of, you know, a certain this or that. And that, I guess, you know, makes them uh, more appealing to follow. And so, you know, I've seen there's a there's a show on Netflix. I forgot what it was called, but it was about influencers and what they do to like stage their posts. And you can like rent a fake plane and take a picture out the side of it. it but it's like a stage. It's yeah. not it's not a real plane, just so that you can make it's like for influencers, right? And so I'm not saying that all influencers are doing this. And yeah, right. if, but it's just interesting to think about, right? Like how this has changed, you know, really changed the way we think about social media. 
we're going back towards human psychology, or I guess that would be the right word, that most people who become these influencers and they are trying to, you know, make those stage picks and get, you know, 20,000 likes on each picture. Is it, don't they have some type of, I think, I don't know if it's my, I hope I say this right too. It's like a micro narcissism or some kind of need or attention thing of mental illnesses having to get those all the time. And that's like, they suffer the most from it. They just, you know, it's like suffering in silence, but they're making their lives better than what it is. Well, Chris, that's really interesting you say that. And, and like, again, I'm going to st- cite some statistics that are like general statistics. They're not, d- d- you know, uh, d- um, directed toward a specific person. But uh, that's another thing that I think young people don't realize is a lot of, not, not all, but I think a lot of the people who are influencers actually are very depressed and they actually hate doing it after a long period of time. Not right away. I think in the first year or two, it's like, oh, this is great. But I think after a while, um, think about it like this. Uh, you hear a lot about movie stars, like let's say t- for 20 years ago, before social media even was existed, right? You would always hear like movie stars had a lot of mental illnesses and, and problems too, right? Sure. And the reason is, uh, one of the main reasons, not all, not the only reason, but one of the main reasons is when you are a star, everyone is always looking at you and they're always thinking things about you and they're judging you and they're, you know, saying things about you and you can't control all that. You can only can control a certain amount of it, but not all of it. And so when you can't control, again, autonomy, right? Like the number one human need is autonomy. When you can't control what's being said about you, you perceive it as a threat and it's very stressful. And that is why a lot of uh, celebrities have a really hard time being a celebrity because you never get privacy. There's all these people saying things. And so in, in, in being an influencer is exactly the same thing. But the thing that's even worse about it is you probably weren't famous before you were an influencer. And so you don't know how to deal with it psychologically. So like you're thrown in this new world of fame that you don't know how to deal with. And that's super difficult, super difficult for anyone. Yeah. Well, it seems like, you know, I mean, generally speaking, of course, all the childhood stars are the ones that, you know, they grew up and seem to have most of these random illnesses or tough times in life that more than anybody else who a person who maybe got famous later in life, you know, and then kind of figured it out on their own. But they have the ones like you just said, they always had the eyes on, you know, on them at a young age and then grow up with it. They were just kind of like seem to be the most troubled. Could be wrong with that. Probably am wrong with it, but I'm just going off random cases that I know off the top of my head. Oh yeah, that's an, well, that's another th- comment I was going to make that I, I, you know, I hope, uh, you know, again, like doesn't offend people. But what's interesting is these researchers have done some studies on what are the types of people that generally use social media the most, and ironically, the people that use social media the most in general are the people who connect with other people in person the least. They have the they have the you know, the most, they have the most troubled relationships in the real world. And so they kind of go online as a way to cope with that and, you know, connect with people online. You know, I never thought about that. And that's kind of, that's really a good point that, and I never would have thought about that, that it's like almost going back to what you were just talking about, you know, with your own personal experiences that, you know, you went towards Facebook and Diablo because you, you were having trouble with, you know, your acne problem or whatever. Right. So yeah, it's like the escape from the reality and right. Like what's a coping mechanism. Right. Yeah. And it's like what people might, you know, like you, and to your point earlier, like start to treat the metaverse as like, it's like ready player one type stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Wow, dude. And 
you know, I don't want to keep thinking we're just like completely dog in technology, but <laughs> no, <laughs> but there, I mean, there's been what's, what's kind of changed a little bit, but there, there has been some good things toward it. I mean, like we, you and I could have never had this conversation tonight without it, but then it's made as far as, you know, going back on a four day work week and stuff. I mean, most people found out that, and even with COVID, they can do 80, 90, 70% of their job through their house as long as they have yeah. a laptop, right? Yeah, well, here's the way, you know, I think it's for me, it's helpful to think of technology like this. I think of technology as a tool, just and like, let's pretend we're talking about a hammer, right? A hammer can be used to build a house, or it can be used to hit someone on the head, right? This technology is no different. It's just a different type of tool. And so I can use it for great things to enhance my life. And I can use it for things that make my life hell. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, again, the whole point of my company, Humans First, is to help people understand the ways that they could um, improve their self-care and their own mental health and relationships and productivity by enhancing their life with technology, not destroying it, not making it worse. Do you think that with technology and as much as we can do, I mean, you know, I can sit here from while we do this podcast and remote into my computer on campus and take care of all the servers or whatever I need to do, that it almost makes us less productive just because we can do that so easily now that we got, Oh, we have more time to go scroll through Instagram and Facebook and get in the game of whatever. Oh yeah. Man. So one of the, I have a couple of statistics for you. So when you, like, let's pretend you're having an amazing day at work and you're just crushing it. Like everything is just going amazingly well, right? Okay. That's a psychological state called flow. And so these researchers uh, analyzed how productive people are when they're in flow. And when you're in flow, you can be up to 500% more productive than when you're not. And so what that means is if you have two hours in flow, you can get more done in those two hours than an entire day without it. But here's the problem is when you're in flow and you get interrupted, and that could be as simple as an email or a phone call or a Slack message, you uh, it takes you 26 minutes to get back into flow. Well, when people are checking their email and Slack once every six minutes and getting a smartphone notification once every 15 minutes, you know that almost no one is ever in flow at all. And that's and so we're never, ever nearly as productive as we could be. Interesting. That's a good point. Huh. I never heard that before, but I like that. You ever, so that's uh, no, yeah, go ahead. So, well, that's one of the things that I, you know, that's really the core of my, my program with humans first is to help people eliminate distractions and focus on what matters most. And if you can do that, and it sounds simple in theory, and it, and it is if you're just open minded, but there's so much that goes into that, like, you know, changing your notifications, changing your work setup, changing your desktop, all these things, right. Um, but once you do it and get it all structured in a way that is conducive to you focusing, it's a total game changer. You ever read, uh, well, I haven't read this book. I've just read the uh, synopsis of it, I guess, but it's called Bullshit Jobs. No, who's that by? Uh, I'd have to look it up, man. I can't remember it because, I, like I said, I didn't read it, but I got like the gist of what it was on. Um, here, I can look it up real quick. Um, yeah, yeah. It's uh, by David Graber, G-R-A-E-B-E-R. But the whole point of the or premise behind the book is that people have these jobs nowadays where they fake like they're working more than they actually are working. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> really? That's the whole premise of the book. Basically. Yeah. So it, wow. it talks about how so many, it's like really hurting people emotionally and psychology and like psychologically that, you know, they're having to pretend like they're working for six, seven, eight hours a day just to 
keep their jobs and that, you know, they're not getting perp or that purpose or meaning meaningful coming in doing a good day's work that they just sit there and just like, you know, their boss comes around, they start typing or something like, Oh yeah. Killing it today, boss. Yeah. No worries. <laughs> and like, that's our whole day is just trying to act like they're working. And yeah, that, that kind of reminds me that, um, you know, the number one thing that, so like, if you ask someone, did you have a good day at work today? And the answer, yes. The number one thing most highly correlated with them saying yes is if they made progress in something meaningful, like in or in like an important, uh, you know, project or sure. initiative. Sure. And so when people are do, I'm I'm guessing I don't know. Obviously, I didn't read the book, but I'm guessing when people are doing these bullshit jobs, virtually no one is thinking that they made progress in something important, and their job probably doesn't feel like it has a lot of meaning to it. Yeah, well, which is unfortunate. You know, talking about earlier in our conversation, we were talking about the brain and its act of like, you know, trying to be surviving or, you know, that act of survival or survival instincts or whatever that, you know, we, I think most humans want to, you know, like you said, have that purpose and that mastery in their life. And they want to have some task where they actually feel like they're doing something with their lives. And, and I think that goes back to our primitive instincts or whatever, just because it was always people working to keep the tribe up or having to eat that night and yeah. And stuff like that. And then, you know, like, and I'm one of those people too, that, and I'm very, my mind is like very task oriented. Like I love doing tasks, like those video games I was talking about. So I go do that now, you know, I like being busy. I like do, having to do things like, you know, I don't like to let my mind just kind of start wandering. And yeah. even though I've heard that, you know, if you do let this kind of off topic, if you let your mind wander, you know, where your heart is, I don't know. Mm, I like that. that. Yeah, I don't know how true. That's cool. Was. Yeah, I like that too. And I was like, when I heard that, I was like, I guess that's kind of point too. But I noticed that I kind of feel like I'm getting lazy or I'm not moving forward or I got to be doing something. That, but if I do get you know tasks done, I feel satisfied. I feel successful throughout my day. That I think most people like that rather than just running around trying to figure out how to fake like they're being busy all day or got through a project. Yeah, I mean that's I really like that phrase. Uh, when you let your mind wander, you know where your heart is. That's really cool. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I kind of fight like I'm, I, I, something you said resonated with me in that I always, or I used to, I used to always feel like I needed to be doing something productive, mm -hmm. but I realized that, you know, that's impossible. Like you can't be productive for the 16 hours a day that you're awake or even 10 hours a day. Right. Like it's just not possible day after day, maybe one day. Right. But and by having some downtime and giving myself permission to take the downtime and relax and enjoy other things or, you know, do something fun or maybe even just do nothing. Maybe just I sit there and pet the cat with my wife and just chat about whatever like that. We did that last night for an hour and a half before bed. And I like really liked that. Like I, that was probably one of the best parts of my week so far, you know, and and so like it was an adjustment for me to kind of go from this always having to be doing something productive to like giving myself permission to not, not do something productive and be okay with that. It took a while for me to be comfortable with that. Yeah. It's well, it's almost one of those entrepreneurial stereotype kind of feelings that, Oh, you have to be working 16 hours a day, no matter what to get so far in life and to be successful. And like Elon Musk sleeping on the, what did he sleep on the production floor in order to get his Tesla factory up? And, and I'm not knocking that. I mean, I'm sure there is truth to that, but that, you know, I'm just wondering that, you know, it's one of those things we talked about earlier. It's like quality versus, you know, how much quality of the work are you actually getting done? 
and how much are you actually doing besides this? You know, when people say they were had to work a 16 hour shift, you know, in that tire factory, I was talking about, well, how much work did you actually do besides walking around talking to other people and acting like you were working? You know? Well, it's you know it's interesting. Like I I know a lot of I like I know that I know that Elon Musk is very controversial, right? And I super respect him as a business person, and I think that he's very smart. But I also you know I always uh, when I look at people like that, or I look at Bill Gates, or I look at Steve Jobs, or whomever, or, or Warren Buffett, I always look at the full picture, right? Because let's just take let's take Elon Musk. I mean super brilliant guy, but you know, he still is working these insane hours. And like, why? I don't really know. He's also, by the way, divorced three times. And again, like no offense to people who have been divorced, but for myself, like if I could trade, you know, having his wealth, but being divorced three times or being me and being, but not being divorced at all, I would be me because I don't like all the wealth in the world wouldn't ever matter. Like wouldn't measure up to me being with my wife. Like I would choose my wife over any amount of anything. Right. And I guess there's like, uh, to me, there's these un, uh, these, like there's these consequences to being that successful that people don't see. And I don't think that they take them into account when they, for instance, evaluate Elon Musk's life. They just look at the business side and see he is at one point the wealthiest person in the world, but they don't look at the three divorces and the other stuff that, you know, maybe is less uh, virtuous about his life, we'll say. Do you think it's, uh, speaking and touching on that, do you think that, uh, I I hope I don't, I'm probably going to butcher this way to say it, but, you know, being... Elon Musk is almost a pro and a con at the same time. And I, I guess what I'm getting at is that because I think you said on, uh, he was on Joe Rogan's podcast here and that Joe Rogan asked him about something with his brain or something like that. And, you know, he said, oh, I don't wish anybody to have my brain just because it seems like it's just always going so fast and so much, you know, 24 seven. It's like, he can't turn it off. Like you were saying, like there's times like, Hey, I just want to sit and chill, you know, like he just yeah. can't do it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So I probably should have said this earlier, but I have ADHD. And that's a very common uh, characteristic of the ADHD brain is it's just, it's like a a famous psychologist described it like this. He said, you have a, not to me, but just a, a general person, right? You have a Ferrari of a mind, you just need to learn how to apply the brakes. And I do feel like that's just my mind is like that. And so one of the things that I actually have done recently is to take up meditation. And I, I tried for so many years, Chris, so many years to try to meditate. And I just like, I, it's not that I couldn't do it. I just wasn't putting in the effort to be honest. And now though, that I've gotten through 10 sessions and I can already see a difference in 10 sessions, like a a meaningful difference. I, you know, think that it's, that's going to be a game changer for me. And I do think it like, helps me quiet my brain to some degree, which sounds kind of weird. But um, no, I, I agree that it's not a it's it's a positive and a negative in that uh, a racing brain like goes through lots of information and thoughts well. But then when you want to calm down and rest and relax, it's kind of a it's a negative. Yeah. So it's I, I agree with your your statement. Yeah, I hope I don't forget these two points. But, you know, I mean, you know, you said that's weird to say. I don't believe that's not that's definitely not weird to say because. You know, meditations helps out in a lot of different ways. And I think it goes very unnoticed, but especially in before 2020 or even before the year 2000. But I think now for whatever reason, just because maybe the podcast or there's so much information that we have access to that it's so beneficial to see like, you know, how meditating for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, an hour out of the day really helps people. And it's almost, you know, it used to be one of those things I feel that, oh, we should never talk about, you know, meditations because that's just for hippie people. And that's just, you know, you don't need to be doing that. But 
<laughs> you know, and I don't mean to offend anybody by saying that, but it's, um, yeah, it's very, seems more acceptable to practice meditating throughout your day. And even if it's just for 10 minutes a day and however you want to do it, if it's just, you know, going for a walk or sitting alone in your car or going for a drive and listen to your favorite song. I mean, I guess there's different forms of it, but if that's meditation to you, but yeah, really, yeah, that's my point. It's like so beneficial now. It was, it's people are like more accepting of it rather than just saying, nah, that doesn't work. Yeah. Well, and you know, what's interesting is I, this is just like my theory, right? I didn't read this somewhere, but I have this theory that meditation is like the opera, excuse me, techno, a lot of technology use is like the opposite of meditation. Here's why I believe that. So for any like humans in general, one of the main reasons or benefits of meditating is that it brings you into the present. And so you're not ruminating about the past or worrying about the future, right? So you're in this present state. Well, what does technology do? Every time you interact with it, it's pulling you out of the present. It's like the opposite of meditation. You're getting sucked into this digital email box inbox, or you're getting sucked into this text message world, or you're getting sucked into this social media world and taken out of the present. And so if you think about it in that way, if we're being taken out of the present hundreds of times a day by our technology, and that is the opposite of meditation, that probably can't be good for our mental health. No, I agree. And, and and going back real quick, and I just want to make sure I didn't forget this point. I wanted to ask you this: that you know, growing up with ADHD, and like you said, that you know, your brain is a Ferrari. You know, at a young age, was that tough for you? And like, in order to learn how to keep control of that and like keep your brain in the, uh, I guess, the lane, so to speak, or in the road, not outside the barrier. <laughs> so, dude, what's what's funny? <laughs> I'm laughing because um, I was such a handful for my parents. I was such an energetic kid. They could not control me. I would throw things all the time. I would do all kinds of crazy things. In fact, my grandma who had seven kids, seven kids, right? right. My grandma said, if any one of her kids would have been like me, she would have stopped having kids. <laughs> 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 and so, yes, I think it was, and I didn't realize it at the time. Right. But sure. I think it was extremely hard for me to be focused, to stay in one place, to follow the directions. It was really hard. <laughs> really hard yeah i mean you know i don't i mean i was i don't know how old you are I was, I'm, I'm 36 so i don't know how if it's over if it was over diagnosed or just nobody really knew how to handle it but you know i you know i i, I didn't never i'm sure i have some form of was it just add not adhd but just you know and i just because i get i would get bored or i was wanting to go do something else i just had i was like you but it's more energy based. Like I just had, to, I couldn't sit down and be still, you yeah. know, like they, at one point in my elementary school, they put me in, I think they called it. Uh, if my brother was here, I'd ask him like a challenge or it's like not a gifted program or something, but it was like a, a thing. Oh, or it was like yeah. chapter nice. one, chapter one, maybe is what they called it. And it was like for things like, Ooh, there's maybe something wrong with him, but we just don't know what it is. So we got to get him outside the normal class. Wow. Yeah. It wasn't like a gifted program or anything like that. It was just like, we know something's going on. and But it wasn't really, it was just being a kid, you know, and I just had a lot of age and I didn't want to be sitting still. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you feel like it helped you to be in that environment then, like in a different environment? Or? It's kind of what you were saying that, you know, and this was first, second, third grade. I'm, I'm really young. I just remember being like, I don't understand why I'm not in the classroom. You know, like, why am I in here? Mm-hmm. And I don't really remember learning anything different or being like, Oh, this is really helping me or anything. It was just more of like, I just remember like 
I'm not with my friends. You know, I don't get it. You know, why am I? And I, and I was never really told like why. And then after a while, they finally just let me go back in. But mm. and until this day, it was like, and I think it's just because of some other situations within my family, you know, like my brother has cerebral palsy and I think they thought there was something related there. And this was like back in the early nineties and stuff that, uh-huh. uh, you know, I never really spoke about this on the podcast before, but that they, they thought that was something wrong with me because I correlated with my brother. And I think that was part of it too. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, you know, I, what's really, what's kind of crazy though, is that I didn't actually get diagnosed for ADHD until less than a year ago. And I'm almost really? 40. I'm almost 40. Right. And um, so I, you know, I went 39 years without knowing, like without having an official diagnosis. And, uh, you know, as, as soon as I heard that though, and I, you know, I've been researching so much about psychology over the last four years, it actually kind of, in a way, almost made me feel better because I was like, oh, like now this explains so many things. Like now I understand why I do this or why I feel this or why I say this. And it kind of like put a lot of pieces to the puzzle together in my mind, which actually was kind of comforting to me in a way. Yeah. I don't know. If the, uh, yeah, it makes sense because you're developing that what self-awareness. And that's one of the things I've learned throughout my life path or experience that you want to call it. And like you were saying, like, you know, why do I think this way or why did I do things this way? And it was kind of, oh, you know, this is just maybe how I'm wired or it's just like maybe I picked this up from somewhere along my, my childhood trauma or I don't know, whatever, which I had a great childhood. I mean, I'm not knocking that by any means, but, you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, when an action is performed, I have to sit down now and be like, all right, so what's going on here? Like gathering all the information, kind of like what we were talking about earlier in the conversation. And that's why I can kind of reflect on it and be like, okay, did that, how did that make me feel? Did I like that? Can mm. I change that? How can I do that better? You know, why yeah. not do it this way? And that's one thing that I've noticed is that, and then through all my aspects of life now that, you know, it's really beneficial to me for whatever reason, just that self-awareness. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting you say that, Chris, because my wife and I talk about this a lot. And she's, you know, I, I credit her for helping me be very self, much more self-aware about a lot of things. And I'm really grateful for that. And um, I I kind of think of self-awareness is just like any other skill, right? Like you can be good at playing chess and you can be good at soccer and you can be good at self-awareness, right? And I do think that you can, it's, it is developable. Like I think that you can get better at it just like any other skill, and some people are naturally good at it. I was horrible at it for the first probably 30 years of my life. Yeah. And so it is a skill that I have really tried to to cultivate. And I'm still working on it. Like, I think it's going to be a lifelong thing. It's not, it's not, it's a journey, not a destination for that. And I'm, but I'm okay with that. I'm, I like that. And it's one of those things going back to, you know, I'm not knocking education again, but you know, I didn't know, like you just said, you called it a skill. I would have never thought that self-awareness was a skill. I would have never thought self-discipline was a skill. You know, I thought, you know, I used to be one of those kids back in high school and college. And I've said this before on here, folks, so don't get mad at me, but you know, that I thought working hard was, you know, just for losers for whatever reason, you know, it's like, Oh, you're going to try, bro. Like, what, you know, <laughs> what the heck, man? Like who does that? Like, nerd? You know, you lose. <laughs> And, and that it was, I don't know if, if maybe that was just maybe having a, the wrong type of mindset during those times and that not knowing that how to self-improve and like how I could be better. It was just that, you know, I just thought things were probably just the way they were, just the way they were. And maybe I just grew up and I matured. I don't know. And, and actually sat down and, or maybe it's all these books that we've been talking about that I actually started like, oh, there's some science to all this stuff. And this is now starting <laughs> to put it together. 
<laughs> did you do when when you were thinking the those things did, were you getting good grades at the time um in high school or well whenever you had those thoughts that yeah. you were talking about um like working no. hard is for the nerds or whatever no in high school no i was terrible like i would do the just see in high school i was the person who would just do good enough to get by yeah 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 so, do you think that there could have been some element of jealousy or envy in the, you know, like toward the nerds because they were probably working hard and getting good grades? No, and and that's and I've had that thought too because at the time I didn't really it was like I don't I don't care, you know, mm-hmm. like and I didn't really have a set goal like, you know, I didn't know if I wanted to go to college, you know, I ended up going to community college just because I thought that's what you had to do, like you had to go to some kind of college not to be a loser. But it was one of those things that in high school this side. It's like, oh, well, whatever. I mean, just, I'm getting by. I mean, I don't care. Like, I didn't care about being the smartest kid or I didn't care about, you know, having getting an A on the test or whatever. I just thought that I could just do good enough and get by that nobody would care. And I just stuck with that mentality. I mean, I probably even had it most of my undergrad. And it wasn't until when I did my graduate degrees when I kind of switched things on it you know it's oh. hey man there is something to working hard and getting good, <laughs> getting good grades and you know actually learning the material rather than just you know crushing some stuff before the night before the test and just hopefully getting a decent grade on it you know? yeah honestly that's one of my biggest regrets is i i i was such a procrastinator all throughout high school and college and i just was i was i guess lucky enough that i could just cram and still get decent grades but I wish I had learned how to really learn before, like when I was in like middle school and I think I would have absorbed or like retained so much more long-term information. I really wish I would have done that. Yeah, no, I would definitely would love to go back and redo some things and, you know, and I, and I'm glad you asked that, you know, cause that puts things to a different perspective. Cause I thought that before that, you know, was I just jealous that they were getting, or was there envious of them getting better grades than me? And I don't, you know, I don't really honestly don't think it was, I just think it was just that, I'm getting by and that's all I cared about, you know, and I, and there was nobody really there to put me in place and check me that, you know, Hey man, do better. You know, why are you just doing enough to get by? And, you know, I remember one time and I know we're kind of over time here and this is probably a little off topic, but, uh, in my seventh, not my seventh grade, my 12th grade English class, I had to write a report on, it's called a modest proposal by Jonathan Swift. Have you ever read it? No, no. Okay. So the whole gist of it is, is that, I think it's in England and they do a, they have a poor economy going on and he proposes that they should start fattening up, you know, newborn babies and selling them and eating them to, you know, help, you know, get the economy back going and getting food. And yeah, it's kind of a weird thing. And it's always stuck. With me. But yeah, I don't think it's a long read either. So it's called a modest proposal, but I think it's Jonathan Swift. And so, um, and he, he argues about saying like how it'd be so good for the country and, you know, good for the health of the people and things like that. But I remember my 12th grade teacher kind of sat me down and was like, you know, cause I was half-assing the thing. And he just kind of like, Hey man, you're not going to graduate unless you really pass this thing. And that was one of the first kind of rude, I guess a rude awakening that I got was like, maybe I should actually start putting some more effort into things, you know? And that was like, it was almost too late then. It was probably like the last semester of high school. So oh, wow. that's when he first gave me my first kick in the ass. I was like, okay, I can't be an idiot the rest of my life. You know I mean? Yeah. So and it's, it's interesting how we remember those conversations like that. Yeah. It's one of those teachers that, you know, stick out in your mind and that, you know, you always have one or two of them throughout your life that are kind of like, thanks dude. Yeah. Hey, thanks, man. So, yeah. 
Yeah. You know what? It, it's uh, um, interestingly, I I had a teacher like that named John Becker, and he was a high school English teacher, and he taught me for two years, not just one. And I actually wanted to, I was so appreciative of him that I wanted to thank him. And I found out that he passed away. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that I wanted to actually do is thank you for reminding me is uh, to, you know, uh, like write a letter to his family and let them know that I really appreciated their, you know, their, their uh, father for, uh, for doing that, you know, for teaching me. And I, uh, I wish I had done that sooner when he was still alive, you know, cause I, uh, I, I kind of regret not telling him while he was still here. I'm sure. He would have liked to hear that. Sure, man. I mean, yeah, Tom waits for no one. So if you get those opportunities, man, you got to attack them like you can for sure. Mm-hmm. So Rob, I don't want to end this on a good note, but, or on a bad note, but I think this is a good spot to take this home on right there. Yeah. Well, how about, can I leave the listeners with one last thought? It'll be a, it'll be a good way to, Yeah, I was getting ready to ask you if you wanted to plug anything, leave anybody with a last thought, like you just said, plug your uh, businesses, whatever people want to find you, all that good stuff. You got four is yours, man. Oh, sure. So, well, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll offer something to the listeners. uh, So you can do a free 30 minute technology mindfulness consultation call with me. All you need to do to redeem that is just email me. My email address is Rob R O B at humansfirst.us. If you just put the name of this, uh, um, you know, Sheller Select in the in the uh, subject line of the email and say you want to do a 30-minute call, I'm happy to set something up with you guys. So we'll do that for you. Um, and then the last, the last thought I wanted to leave everyone with was this. My wife and I really, uh, really thought that this was special. We actually said this at a toast at our wedding to the, to the guests. The amount of love, success, and happiness in this world are infinite. So imagine how much love, success, and happiness we can all have together if we all decided to put humans first. That's the way to end it right there. (laughs) Rob, man, you're a cool dude, man. I appreciate you being here, bro. Yeah, thank you, Chris. It's been great. I really appreciate you as well. Thank you. All right, folks, we're gone. Good night. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park